Hi, I'm Ryan McGranigan, and this is the Origins Podcast. Origins features conversations with thought leaders across an eclectic mix of disciplines, crafted specifically for the category-defying society that we live in. We explore the thoughts, passions, stories, and pivotal moments that constellate their lives. Draw inspiration for your own trajectory from the intellectual and spiritual electricity of these conversations. Mark Granovetter has made and remade our understanding of social networks, social theory, collective action, and economic sociology, making and remaking our world in the process. It would not be hyperbole to say that few living scholars have had the influence of Mark Granovetter. In 1995, Mark joined Stanford University as professor of sociology, and since 1997, he has been the Joan Butler Ford Professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences. There, he continues his pursuit of a seemingly endless fascination with the way people, social networks, and social institutions interact and shape one another. Across a more than 50-year career, he has repeatedly contributed seminal work in the fields that I mentioned and that have been moving forces in numerous other disciplines and intellectual movements. It would be difficult to read Mark's research without finding relevance to your own place in the world. Among an intimidating list of academic publications and book chapters, he is the author of two of the three most cited papers in sociology. It's worth pausing for a moment to let that sink in. In the entire field of sociology, he has written the first and third most cited papers ever. The Strength of Weak Ties in 1973 and Economic Action and Social Structure, the Problem of Embeddedness in 1985. Together, they have garnered more than 100,000 citations and are annually among the most highly cited papers to this day. Weak tie theory is considered foundational in sociology, taught in most introductory courses, and embeddedness is now a central concept in economic sociology and anthropology. If those were not enough, Mark also laid the foundations for what is known as threshold analysis, which is theory for when individuals' actions will lead to cascades in collective behavior. That theory formed the central academic insights in Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. He is also the author of two books, Getting a Job, A Study of Contacts and Careers, which came out in 1974, and Society and Economy, Framework and Principles in 2017. He's now working on a sequel, Society and Economy, Cases and Applications. He's been elected into most major academies you could think of, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Academy of Political and Social Science, the National Academy of Sciences, and has a list of accolades we could spend the rest of the show listing. Mark was a history major at Princeton before completing a PhD in sociology from Harvard in 1970. I have a deep admiration for Mark's work, and I'm overwhelmed at the opportunity to ask him a few questions. Mark, thank you for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Your work has been drawn out commonly as a source of advice for building a career and what we now call networking, but it's much more important and fundamental than that. And I want to draw it and your impact through network science out in its societal and civilizational implications. I also want to draw you out as what I consider one of the great askers of our time. So I would like to start where I always start my conversations, whether it's with a physicist or a poet or an activist, and that is to try to understand the questions that lodge in a person and shape how they have lived. This begins with a sense of inquiry and mystery. And I'm curious if there was a background of inquiry and perhaps even spirituality in your childhood? In my childhood? Well, I think I was always inquisitive, but I can't, I went to a large public high school in in a large urban city, uh, Jersey City, which is across the river from New York City. And it was, I think, a predominantly working class city, although I never thought much about that. It's it's certainly a multi-ethnic city, uh, I didn't think much about that. It just seemed perfectly natural. Uh, I went to this one of four large high schools in the city, and I got, I had training, which was exceptional in some subjects and probably less exceptional in others. Uh, 
but I don't want to call out anybody. I had remarkable uh, teacher in Latin who taught me for four years, and I got a deep appreciation for Latin poetry, for example, by the time I was finished with that. I ended up going to Princeton University partly because, uh, well, really mainly because, there was a fellow named William Kane who actually owned something called the Yonkers Raceway. I don't know if you know what that is or was, maybe still exists. It was, a, I think, Trotters mainly. Uh, and he became very wealthy. And he had a great affection for Princeton, from which he had, I think, graduated, and for two places. One was a place in upstate New York called Goshen, which is a little place where he had a country home. And one was Jersey City, New Jersey, which was where I came from. And so he endowed something called the Kane Scholarships at Princeton. And in, in my era, at least, uh, every year, four or five of the most promising high school students from two different places, his two favorite places, Goshen, New York, and Jersey City, New Jersey, were recipients of this pretty beneficent Kane Scholarship to Princeton. Uh, and I was one of those, and because of the relative sizes of the places, there was almost never anyone from Goshen, New York. The recipients were almost always from Jersey City, so it was almost guaranteed that four or five students from Jersey City would receive these scholarships. And I remember being interviewed by a fellow named Walter Hollenbach, who was a Princeton graduate class of 1903, uh, and he was a very energetic guy. He was an insurance salesman, and he was in his probably in his eighties at the time. He interviewed me, um, and I remember that interview very distinctly. And I don't remember what he asked me, but whatever it was, I guess he liked my answers, and so I was chosen to be one of those Keynes scholarship winners. And I was admitted to other universities, including Harvard which did not offer me any financial aid whatsoever, uh, and Princeton, which offered me this substantial scholarship. And because every year there were four or five students from Jersey City, I already knew a lot of people who had, uh, were at Princeton on this scholarship. And so I'd been on tours of the campus several different times. And so it seemed very natural for me to become a student there, which, which I did. I'm curious what questions you carried with you to Princeton. Did you have an idea of the things you were interested in? Was right. it kind of open at that point? Or it may be perhaps even related to um, the things that your parents did or, or kind of instilled in you. I don't think it had much to do with my parents. My mother was an elementary school principal. My father was an outside salesman uh, bringing women's lingerie and so on to various stores and selling them for, on behalf of the manufacturer. Uh, they were both very bright and inquisitive, but I don't think they imparted any particular questions that I carried with me. Uh, I had been impressed in high school by accounts of lawyers. Uh, in particular, I, in a history class, we read a book about Clarence Darrow called Attorney for the Damned. And I was very impressed by what a lawyer could accomplish on behalf of social justice and so on. And so I went to college thinking that perhaps I'd become a lawyer. I think that ambition probably disappeared sometime in my freshman year. I don't even remember when, when that happened. I just got more interested in other things. And I went to college expecting to major in political science. Uh, and I did take three political science classes in my freshman year, all of which I enjoyed very much. But my goal of majoring in political science kind of disappeared when I looked at the rest of the course list and couldn't find anything else I wanted to, to study. Uh, meanwhile, I was enrolled in a course called World History, and World History was a year-long course which went from the beginning of time to the modern period I think the first semester went up to about the French Revolution. So that was a couple of thousand years. Um, and 
the way I came to major in history, which was just full of fascinating questions, we had a really outstanding textbook, which kind of went from the beginning of time to the, to the current day. And as will happen with students, especially with freshmen, especially with freshmen who are uh, freshmen, of course, by definition, are new to college and don't know exactly what they're doing. And so you, you're liable to fall behind um, before the final exam. And I did fall behind. And this is a problem in a history class. In fact, I can remember very clearly that by the time the final exam was rolling around, I was behind by about a thousand years. Uh, and so that meant that I had to read about a thousand years of history in this really very interesting textbook that we had, a book by R.R. R. Palmer called The History of the Western World. The rest of the world outside the West didn't exist in those days. And it was very, for me to have to catch up on a thousand years in about two weeks, turned out to be, contrary to my expectations, an exhilarating experience because I felt like the world was unfolding before my eyes and there was, um, it went from, from ancient Rome to, to uh, medieval times to the Renaissance and the Reformation and the French Revolution and all these things unfolded in a way that the textbook ma made seem somehow understandable. And, and I could just see it uh, kind of unfolding before my eyes and it was just so exciting to see that. And by the time I got to the final exam, it was, I had decided that I was going to major in history because there were so many exciting questions. With your exhilaration during these, these two weeks of moving through history, I'm curious if, if that passion, that exhilaration has lasted. Do you still carry an exhilaration and an interest in, in kind of how history is unfolding? And, and I'm also curious how your training as a historian has stayed with you uh, up, up until now. Right. Well, I think my training as an historian, so, so the reason that I didn't go to graduate school in history was that the problem is that to become a professional historian, you have to specialize in a period and a place, almost invariably. 17th century England, 18th century France, 19th century Russia, all very fascinating times and places. And I was certainly very interested in why there was a French Revolution, why there was a Russian Revolution, but at some point I realized that I was more interested in why there were revolutions, period, rather than any particular revolution. How can we understand the general question of why there are revolutions, why are there social movements, why do extremists like Hitler and his Nazi movement, how can they possibly take a civilized country and be, make it into a completely uncivilized country? Uh, and so that was fascinating to me. And in fact, I did my senior honors thesis, which everyone at Princeton is required to do, uh, trying to understand something about the background of the Nazi period, although I didn't get into the Nazi period, but I studied the what's called the German youth movement uh, from 1896 to 1933. People know about the Hitler youth, but that was quite different. And in fact, the people in the original youth movement were completely disdainful of the Hitler youth. They thought of them as a bunch of thugs, which was more or less right until the 1933 Hitler just folded all the youth groups into the Hitler Youth so that anybody and everybody had to join. Um, that was what was called being gleich, gleich geschaltet, which means basically consolidated into whatever the Nazi version of anything was. Uh, and so I was really fascinated in all those questions. But as I said, I was more fascinated by the question of how these things happen and what the what the general patterns are. And I had had in my freshman year a philosophy class in the philosophy of science taught by, it turned out, I didn't know before I went in, an eminent philosopher of science named Carl Hempel, who was very interested in the idea of what it meant to explain in science. 
And so I absorbed his ideas of what it meant to explain, and I always have continued to be influenced by that. Um, and basically, he argued that explanation has to do with <clears throat> figuring out general patterns, general regularities, what you call general laws. Uh, <clears throat> and so that's why I thought that I needed to find a field that really wanted to explain in general terms why things happen, why revolutions happen, why mass movements happen, why societies can degenerate in the way that Germany did. And I came to understand at some point that the field that actually asked questions like that was sociology. And I decided to go to graduate school in sociology, even though until my senior year, I had taken zero classes. But anyway, I applied to graduate school only in sociology, and I, for whatever reason, applied only to Berkeley and Harvard. The reason I decided on Harvard is that when I started in 1965, sociology at Harvard was part of a larger department, which was called the Department of Social Relations, which had been around for about 20 years before that, and which had been started by the eminent sociologist Talcott Parsons, and the department had five what were called wings. It had sociology, and it also had, so I have to explain that at Harvard at that time, the psychology department and the anthropology department had split into the so-called more scientific and less scientific parts of it. So the more scientific part of psychology was run by a fellow named B.F. Skinner, a very famous behavioral psychologist, who was famous for learning everything about human behavior from studying rats and pigeons. Uh, Mark, there, there's something I'm very curious about that, that I think is, is an important piece here. You know, I, I keep thinking about how I believe you to be one of the great askers, and I think that's what's led to your... Um, creating really frontier and novel research. And and I, it's almost what I might call a philosophy of asking questions. And I think your transition from history to sociology speaks to that a little bit. You talked about going from these very specific questions, uh, history maybe being associated more with kind of rote facts. Um, I know it's much broader than that, but but being more factually oriented to sociology, which is more process oriented and in principle and general pattern oriented. And not everyone's comfortable with that ambiguity and that kind of open-endedness that might be required for someone to study sociology. And I'm very curious if you recognize that in yourself, this, this, uh, this capacity to be uh, able to entertain more ambiguity and, and lack of resolution. Did you recognize that then? I think that a good historian knows a lot about ambiguity. Uh, and the Department of History at Princeton was, was a very uh, outstanding set of faculty. And so everyone uh, that I studied with who, in history was well aware of uh, how complicated and ambiguous things, things really were. You know, there's a stereotype about history that the study of history is, as, as someone once said, just one damn thing after another. Uh, but that wasn't the way my uh, mentors in history approached things. They really wanted to know what made things happen, what drove things. Um, my philosophy mentor, Hempel, argued that good historians always implicitly invoked generalities, general laws in history. And he wrote a famous article called The Function of General Laws in History, and there was quite a lot of controversy about that, but I thought he was absolutely right that good historians were implicitly invoking regularities. If this happens, then that happens. And in order to understand why there was a French Revolution, why there was a Russian Revolution, why there was all the English Revolution, and so on and so forth. So it didn't. It wasn't as big a transition as it might sound for me. Uh, but I was really more interested in the regularities. But I think what I'd learned from being a student of history, was that generalities and regularities are very important, and that is what you're after. But to really get at them, you're lost. You're not ever going to be able to do it unless you act, 
have a complete grasp of the detail. Uh, and and the devil is in the details, and you have to somehow extract from all those details of hi- of history what made things happen. And you don't really have much hope of doing that if you didn't, at least in the first instance, have a grasp of the details. So it wasn't that big a transition for me in that sense, and I never lost my interest in the details. I think some people read some of what I have written and say, well, that's too detailed, he's too interested in the detail. I don't think there's such a thing as being too interested in the detail. I think it's it's from the details that you can figure out what was really going on. So, of course, there was a transition, but it wasn't as big of a transition as it might sound. This is, thank you for that. This is an important point. I think people who, I think writers know this. I think philosophers know this. I think to a certain extent, scientists know this idea, but there's not, there's there's a, a pattern in which the the universal kind of peaks out from the particular, and the, and the more focused and particular you can get, um, the more universal appeal kind of paradoxically that might have, and how, I mean, how many more people can kind of see themselves in those details. And so I think that's a really important point. It, it's I'm very interested in research lineages and, and and mentors and mentees, and it sounds like Carl Hempel uh, was a wonderful mentor to you. He was Did, indeed. Do you remember certain things that he used to say to you? What what sticks with you about his mentorship? Well, he was, in fact, when you read what he wrote, some of it looks very dry, I think, if you just read what he wrote. But he was, in fact, an inspiring and charismatic lecturer, contrary to what one might have expected from him. And he was just very focused on the idea that uh, to explain something meant showing that it was part of a general pattern. And so that was what he was always talking about. And he had a lot of important, and he was very focused on questions like, what does it mean for something to be a tautology? Uh, And he would explain, uh, for example, his example of a tautology, which always stuck with me, is that uh, if you say that opium puts you to sleep because of its dormitive powers, and he had these bushy white eyebrows that he would that would go up and down when he would say something like that. And he was very funny with the German accent. Um, and so that's a perfect example of a tautology because, of course, the word dormitive means having the capacity to put you to sleep. So uh, some of those things always stick with you. Uh, and, and so he was really certainly an inspiration. And then I took a senior seminar with him, which where he was going through some of the things that were going to appear in one of his later books. And we had a lot of very interesting conversations there. In fact, he was one of the one of two faculty, I think, who wrote letters of recommendation for me when I applied to graduate school. Uh, I I didn't I was no longer in contact with him after that. But uh, the influence certainly stayed with me. And I always thought about what I was doing in in the terms that, that he gave to me. Sounds like a wonderful relationship. I, I, I consider mentors capaciously and I, to include people that we read from potentially past generations, people that we're in conversation with across time and space. And and you cited somewhere that Max Weber was one of your main inspirations because he was exploring the relationship between economic processes and social structure as early as the start of the 20th century. What was your relationship to, to Weber? When were you reading him? What, what effect did it have? I'm not sure when I first read Weber. I don't think I read him as an undergraduate. Uh, he's, I don't know if you've ever tried to read Weber. He's very difficult to read. He's a rather bad writer. Uh, <laughs> but he had these very broad interests and he was, he had very, his scope of interest was just enormous. Uh, his his um, magnum opus is called Economy and Society. And my 2017 book is a kind of maybe not so clever play on that title because I called my book Society and Economy because I thought it was time to get the order right. You know, what comes first, you know, society comes first and economy is a kind of special case of what's going on in society. But I think you have to understand it's it, the, the funny thing about Weber was that 
all of his academic positions, and he died rather young. He died at the age of uh, 57 or something like that. Uh, and his career was interrupted for about five years while he was having what people used to call nervous breakdown, and he couldn't do any academic work. So it's just astonishing what he... In fact, his, his great work, Economy and Society, was not something he actually ever wrote. Uh, instead, he wrote things... A lot of he, he had a lot of drafts of material that would eventually be in economy society, and then he died before he could pull it all together. And so his wife and his colleagues had to go through all his papers and all the pads of yellow paper in his drawer uh, where he had written everything out in longhand, and they had to pull it together. And this book that they pulled together out of all these notes and, and bits and pieces that were incomplete and whose order was unclear. Um, they published it as Economy and Society, and it's remarkable that a book that was pulled together in that way and is so unfinished became one of the most uh, dominant works of social science in the 20th century, and is still inspirational if you read it, although very very dense. I mean, Weber, in, in, in this way, also was inspirational. He was really focused on details. He thought details were... He, big generalizations were, of course, what he was trying to do. But he knew so much that he knew that every generalization he would make had exceptions. And so if you read Economy and Society, it's very frustrating because he'll make a generalization, which is a very interesting generalization, and then there'll be four or five paragraphs in smaller font where he'll talk about all the exceptions to that generalization and why they're important and why they're interesting. He couldn't just make a generalization. He had to show all the ways in which the generalization might not be quite right and all the things that were exceptions. So he knew an astonishing number of details about everything you can think of. He knew the history and the sociology of every major society in all different periods. He wrote about ancient history. He wrote about China, uh, religions of the Far East. He wrote about all sorts of things. It was, um, I guess I didn't think about it at the time, but I guess it was an inspiration for me to see someone doing that and having that large vision and not forgetting about the details. In fact, focusing on the details. The Department of Psychology had split into the experimental psychology of Skinner with his rats and pigeons and several other groups of people who did social psychology and clinical psychology and developmental psychology. And the Department of Anthropology had split into the people who did social anthropology, studied tribes and talked about their, their social relationships, and people who were archaeologists mainly, so what used to be called the, the people who did stones and bones. Uh, and so th those that's, that is split into two, two different departments. And so the social anthropologists and the social psychologists and the clinical psychologists and the developmental psychologists, they all joined with the sociologists to create this department of social relations. So it was this interdisciplinary department at five different groups drawn from psychology and anthropology and sociology. And so that's where I chose to go to graduate school because I thought that would be so interesting. And I wasn't wrong. It was really a remarkable experience. And if you were a student in that, if you're a graduate student in that department, you had to take classes in every one of those groups. And so I learned from the psychologists and the anthropologists and the sociologists. Uh, and I was a TA for a great social psychologist named Roger Brown. So I learned a lot about that. And when, as a resident tutor in Lowell House, which was one of the residential houses in Harvard College, um, I had to teach the sophomore seminar and I had to teach from all those different, from the psychology and the anthropology and the sociology. And so I had to really absorb it and learn it. And so that was a great experience, which I think nobody has anymore in graduate school, that department was kind of already on the ropes. It had been around for about 20 years, and the faculty in the department were no longer that interested in being together in one department, but the graduate students loved it. And in fact, they mixed us 
So each office had four or five students and they, they mixed us from all the different wings. So we talked to each other and we learned about what one another were doing. So that was a great graduate school experience of a kind that I don't think anyone has anymore. So that there's, always stayed with me. There, it sounds like such an exciting place to be. And there's this great Norbert Weiner quote, the, the cybernetician, uh, he, call, he says that the most fruitful areas for the growth of the sciences were those which had been neglected as a no man's land between the various established fields. And it sounds like that's precisely what this department was. And of course, it led to this seminal work that you created in 1973, The Strength of Weak Ties. Uh, and in your book, which comes from the PhD work that encapsulates this, this paper and the work that you've done surrounding it, you write, when it comes to finding out about new jobs or for that matter, new information or new ideas, quote, weak ties are more always more important than strong ties. And it sounds like this discovery was made out of this interdisciplinary liminal department that you were a part of. Could you describe what gave you the idea for weak ties being so important? Sure. But maybe I should go back a little bit to say how I became interested in social networks in the first place. Uh, and that, that goes back to my time in history. And when I was studying French history, the French Revolution, I read this remarkable book by a remarkable French historian named Georges Lefebvre, called The Great Fear of 1789, which talked about some of the upheavals that were the preface to the French Revolution. And he talked about how some of these social movements and uprisings came to be. And one of the things he showed was that if you traced the geographic spread of these uprisings, they followed the same routes that postal service followed. And he showed maps of postal routes and, and superimposed on those uh, maps of these uprisings. Uh, and it was clear that somehow there was something going on there that later we would call social networks that, you know, if mail moved along these routes, then other kinds of influences moved along those routes. And I became so, I just thought this was so interesting. You know, there was history that was kind of always from the top, you talked about um, kings and um, diplomats and you know, stuff like that. But there wasn't much. And then there were some people who studied only the, the peasants uh, at the bottom and, and what they were doing. But there wasn't much that connected the two. And one of the things I learned implicitly, and I later came to make it explicit, from this great book on, on the Great Fear of 1789 was that there was a level between the individuals and the, and all the great men um, where things were happening that were connecting what individuals did to what was happening at the top. And this level, was, to me, was exemplified by these maps that showed how revolutions followed already established routes of, of transit of the mail uh, and those pictures that appeared in Lefebvre's book looked like pictures of what we would now call social networks. So I just knew that that was probably very important. I didn't even know it had a name. And then when I got to Harvard, into graduate school, it turned out, so there's a lot of things that are just contingent here that could easily have happened otherwise. But there was a faculty member, a young faculty member, he was, I, I guess he was 35, um, and he was a new senior faculty member at Harvard named Harrison White, who was had, in fact, recently gotten his second PhD. His first PhD was in theoretical physics from MIT, and then he decided he wanted to do something harder, so he got a PhD in sociology uh, at Princeton, and he was very interested in social networks. And um, part of it was, part of his interest in social networks came from what he had been doing in physics, because he'd been studying net particle networks and he was interested in, in semiconductors and crystal lattices. And so he had some of those images stuck with him when he became a sociologist. And he was very interested in social networks and he was very uh, dismissive of the kind of work that 
some people in sociology were doing, which which were was completely abstract and had no uh, focus on details or what was going on on the ground. And so he was interested in what came to be called social networks, and he assembled around him a group of graduate students in, in which I was, of, of whom I was one, um, who became interested in social networks in the same way that he was. And so he was charismatic in his own way. <clears throat> and then I was a TA for him. Um, he was a very awkward lecturer, and somebody uh, in their infinite stupidity, I don't want to say wisdom because it was crazy, they made him, they assigned him to teach introductory sociology to freshmen. And it's hard to imagine a worse match because he was, to the freshmen, mostly incomprehensible. In fact, one of my fellow graduate students took it on himself after every lecture to, to write a translation of his lecture into English, which he then distributed to, to the students. But although the freshmen were quite mystified by what he was talking about, the graduate students followed it avidly. And I was a TA, and it was just fascinating to me. And one of the things that Harrison White assigned to the undergraduates, the freshmen, they, they had no idea why, was this study that was carried out by a fellow named Anatole Rappaport, who was a um, quantitative, it, it was a, he, he published articles in places like the Bulletin of Mathematical Biophysics, and, and he was very interested in networks. And he, one of the, th one of the studies he did was a study of a junior high school in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which has 751 students. And <clears throat> Rappaport was interested in networks, and so he had each of those students, this was what came to be called the sociometric tests, and students were happy to, to fill these out because, you know, it was more interesting than what they were doing in class. So he asked every student to, to write the names of their eight best friends, starting with their best friend, their second best friend, their third best friend, down to their eighth best friend. And he collected all that information. And then he was interested in questions. You can see it in his paper. He's interested in, if you've, you've followed out the networks of first and second best friends and looked at the first and second best friends of the first and second best friends and the first and second best friends, the first and second best friends, the first and so on, so on. How many people would you eventually reach if you just took random starting points and, and followed the networks from the first and second best friends. And they did the same thing for third and fourth best friends, and then the same thing for fifth and sixth best friends, and the same thing for seventh and eighth best friends. And what he showed in this paper was that you reached, eventually, the smallest number of people through first and second best friends, and the largest number through seventh and eighth best friends. And the reason was, it was pretty clear, <clears throat> that if, if you looked at the first and second best friends of the first and second best friends, they would, they would overlap. You know, they would fold back because some of the same people were naming the same people. And that was a lot less likely with seventh and eighth best friends. And so in that article by Rappaport and Horvath, they said something like, and this is obviously because of the well-known fact that you reach more people through weaker ties. And I looked at that and I said, really? That's a well-known fact? And isn't that interesting? And he doesn't have any idea why that's interesting. And I realized that there were some reasons why you'd want to think about why that's interesting. So I kind of filed that away. And actually, back in the back of my mind was, although I think it, I did think of it at the time, uh, in my high school advanced placement class in chemistry, we had studied... Hydrogen bonds, you know about hydrogen bonds? They are very weak bonds that hold together large molecules like H2O that could not be held together otherwise. And so there was that image, and it, it came to me again. There were, there were these weak bonds holding together these large structures, and it was in the back of my mind, and I read this Rappaport stuff, and then I started doing research on how people find jobs, and I, I, I kept 
hearing from people that they were finding jobs through their weak ties rather than their strong ties, they would say, I was interviewing people and they would, I would say, how did you find this job? And they'd say, oh, I found it through you know, so-and-so and so And I would say, oh, so you found it through a friend. And people kept correcting me and saying, no, 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 he was just an acquaintance. So, you know, when you're doing research and you're talking to people who, of course, know more about their own lives than you do, otherwise, why would you interview them? And they keep correcting you. You have to think, why are they correcting me? What what do they know that I don't know? And so it occurred to me that this was related to what Rappaport found and what you learned from hydrogen bonding. And, and then Stanley Milgram started doing his small world studies. And one of the things he found was that you could reach more people through weaker ties than through stronger ties. And so it just, it just was overwhelming. And so... Uh, I, I, I thought someone has to pull us all together. Uh, and so I wrote a paper, which actually was called, the first draft was called Alienation, Alienation Reconsidered. The Strength of Weak Ties was the subtitle. But that paper was rejected, and I got this crushing rejection from the American Sociological Review. And so the paper was just absolutely and unceremoniously rejected. You know, I was a graduate student, I opened this letter, and the first review, the first sentence of the first review was something like, among the innumerable reasons why this paper should not be published, I list the following six. And it went on like that. I have these reviews still, if you'd like to see them, I'm happy to send them to you. Um, I show them to graduate students, so that they know that even papers that people later decide are actually okay can get these terrible reviews to begin with. So you really can't be discouraged. Yeah. Anyway. Opening those letters is, is something that just drops your stomach out. If, if you get comments like that. Um, and I think it's something everyone goes through. Certainly metaphorically it dropped my stomach out and I actually didn't work on it for another year or two, but then I went back to it. I thought, you know, there really is something there. Uh, and I just have to rethink how I present this. And so I took the word alienation out of the title. I took all mentions of alienation out of the paper and I refocused it on the social network part. And so the paper was finally published in 1973. To my astonishment, the paper was influential almost immediately. Uh, it, it didn't, I didn't have to wait very long. I started getting correspondence from famous people almost right away saying how interesting this was, um, much to my surprise. And the paper now has more than 70,000 citations, which is astonishing. But I'll tell you something even more astonishing, which is that about 94% of the citations were, were 2000 and, and later. So that's remarkable so what has it been for you to watch this become i mean you you've mentioned some of the areas some of the people who have become interested in this i mean just recently um a scholar a political scientist and philosopher that i that i adore daniel allen writes about your work as laying the foundations for her theory of relationality um using your foundations of network theory And, and i'm curious what it felt like or maybe even still feels like when you're witnessing the strength of we ties uh, take off and become the cultural phenomenon that has become? Well, I feel like I'm, I'm observing it from outer space. I feel like this is uh, no longer to do with me, but it's taken on a life of its own. I, I, there, there continue to be replications, uh, and they are appearing in science and the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, people taking the idea of the strength of weak ties and showing in what ways it is correct in the way that I stated it, in which ways it needs to be extended, in which ways it's 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 different, and how we can extend it and how we can make it more complicated, and and that's just remarkable to me that it just continues to have that life. It just is has this ability to generate new stuff and new ideas and new studies. 
uh, and new ways of thinking about networks that are far beyond what I had originally thought, but it just has this generative quality to it. So it's really astonishing to me. Of course, it's gratifying and rewarding and exciting, but it's also astonishing. It is astonishing. And it's a truly emergent phenomenon. And I mean, I think just speaks to the, the, the rigor of your, your scholarship for, for what it has become and the things, the ideas that has opened. You, you've also gone on remarkably to do this again. You've done this in, in a separate work that's the third most cited sociology, sociology paper of all time. And then I would attribute a similar level of influence in, in later work that you've done on that has become called has now been called threshold analysis and that work you know i want to go into detail on all of these but i think I, i'd love to focus on threshold analysis because i think it speaks to something important in our society now and a, a great dynamic which is trying to understand collective intelligence how do we accomplish things in collaboration and cooperation and what does that mean in, in this kind of radically changing world so I'd love to know how you're thinking about this threshold analysis and the work that you began, I believe, with Thomas Schelling, another um, incredible... Schelling was there before I was, but I, I went in different directions and maybe in fuller generality. Schelling did it for residential segregation, but I did it for the more general case of where the thing that was happening could have been anything. Um, so my first paper was published in 78, 1978, so that was my attempt. The reason I was interested in that was, again, because this goes back to my kind of fundamental understanding that uh, there, between what individuals do and what happens at, at a larger level, there's some very complex and really nonlinear stuff going on. It's not just the, the stuff that happens at a larger, more macroscopic level. It's not just a linear combination of everything that happened uh, to individuals. It's much more complicated than that. And if it's nonlinear, that means that very, sometimes very small differences in the, the uh, distribution of what individuals are like and how they're thinking can make huge differences in large-scale collective outcomes. That's the nature of nonlinearities. Uh, and so much of social science is just linear, and that's boring because the real world is nonlinear. You get, you know, there's the kind of the popular thing is about butterfly effects and so on, and I suppose there may be such things, but it's it's much more general than that. And it's I think a, a lot of social science needs to be reconfigured in nonlinear terms. Well, you laid a foundation again. And then you said something in more recent years that I find provocative and I find important for anyone recognizing networks and thresholds, which are basically all areas of society, but anyone thinking about these things that, that that's important for, for how we're thinking about them now. And you said, I don't think we know how to integrate research on networks and thresholds yet. And I think this is an essential, essential of where we are with sociology and network science right now. And that is when our questions change, that so much new becomes possible. And it kind of brings me to where you are now in, in asking how have the questions that you're asking and living changed? Well, I'm focused on large questions about sociology and, and the economy and how the economy runs. And so the first volume of my book was on what I called a framework and society and economy framework and principles. And so I talked about some fundamental categories like uh, social norms and and um, trust and power and institutions, and I just think those things need to be understood. And I, I didn't try to formalize all that. Instead, I tried to show, I tried to point the way to how we can understand those things. And it's always more complicated than what people are doing. I, th I think my job even in the strength of weak ties and in the threshold morals, uh, I thought my job was mainly to point the way rather than to complete the formalization. And so that's uh, something similar to what I'm doing. I, what the role of personal relationships is in the economy. So there's networks again in some way. And, and that turns out to be a very interesting and complicated question. I don't 
see any way to quantify that. But I think we, before we can think about quantifying things, we have to understand what's going on. And so, so what I'm working on really is to try to get those things straight. Uh, and I'm working on a chapter in the second volume now on corruption. It turns out to be quite a fascinating topic. Again, one that has, it has, there are quantitative and mathematical approaches to it. And I don't think they are very successful um, because they've kind of given up all the interesting parts in order to make, make things tractable. And I think if you do that and you've kind of, you've kind of given up on things, on really understanding what's going on, um, because you're just doing what you know how to do instead of trying to think about what you don't know how to do and what you don't understand. And so that's always been my goal, is to figure out what I don't understand and how I can get closer to understanding it. And I think if I can do that, then I'll help other people do it too. Thank you. So it sounds like where you're pointing people, what you're trying to spell out for people to pick up, exists in this sequel to your your book society and economy cases and applications you're going to point to these intractable areas these nonlinear, these areas where we can't ignore the non-linearities um, as a guide for people uh, who are interested in maybe adding their formalization and their own thinking too uh, and so that's certainly a, a testament to that that's true that's true although i don't try i don't scare anyone off by using terms like non-linearities but i think that would be a fair description of what i've been doing I'm interested in how you speak with with people, particularly students, perhaps even and children that you may have. And I haven't seen that history of you outlined anywhere. But I, I'd love to invite you to share the, the questions that you're asking your students, um, how you invite them into these conversations. I reread some things that I've written, and they write commentary on what I've written, and we talk about their commentary. And so that's my way of inviting them, I suppose. Um, but I don't say, here's what I'm doing. I'm inviting you to explore these questions further. If they find them interesting enough to explore further, then that's fine. If there's something else they'd rather explore, I'm not going to force them to explore what I've explored. They, everyone has to find the thing that fascinates them the most. And so I think your role with students is to help them pursue the thing that they find most fascinating, not to help them pursue the thing you find the most fascinating. Certainly. And, and I mean that in a broad sense of inviting them into the, the broader cultural conversation of where these ideas are happening and, and so that they can have a foot into it and, and really know know how to, how to begin. Yeah. There's there's another thing that I think kind of naturally comes to mind when someone looks at your, your life. And, and by all measures, you are wildly successful. Your success and recognition are wide and, and undeniable and many would consider you what success in the sciences looks like. So what sort of worries pop up for you? What concerns and voices of doubt appear in your life and, and what conversations do you have with them? Well, I'm going to retire in a couple of years uh, and I will miss teaching. So I'm a little worried about not having students and not uh, explaining to students what's so interesting but that's what you sacrifice in order to have time to write and think through everything. So I'm a little concerned about not having that structure in my life anymore. But I think it's time. I've been teaching for 54 years. And if you count my graduate school teaching, it'd be 57 it's a lot of teaching, and I think that maybe it's time for me just to have the luxury of spending the time on getting my own writing done, because, you know, we're not given an unlimited period of time to do this in. So I think I have to think about uh, what the best way is for me to use the years I have remaining, however many that is, and however many years... Uh, it will be while I can still think clearly about things. Uh, I I think I I would really like to be able to do that. Well, it's exciting uh, for for those of us who are admirers of your work. I, I look forward to to the things that you will create and the things that you will write. I, it's um, there. There's such a, a record, an academic record of people that I will point them to in the show notes that we have only scratched the surface on. 
but I appreciate you chronicling how those have kind of unfolded across your life and related it to the ways that, that kind of your own philosophy for making sense in the world. And, and Mark, for that, I, I'm very appreciative. I think this is a good moment to transition to the, the final part of the show, which we call the lightning round, uh, which is just a series of four quick questions and answers that we use to conclude the show. So the first question that we ask in the lightning round is, what is one book that you feel has impacted you unlike anyone else? Is there a book that you feel you have a special relationship to? I suppose Weber's Economy and Society would be the one that I would pick out. The second question, what passion outside of your own field has most importantly helped set your trajectory? Well, I mean, it's hard to say because I I read very widely and I, I really don't care about the boundaries. Uh, I read a lot of history and sociology and political science and some economics and, and, and so on. So I don't feel there's anything that I shouldn't read. So I, I don't, I'm not sure how to answer that. There, there are in, there are many different fields that have a lot of work that's not so interesting and a few things that are really fascinating. And so I can, I can make a list of all the things that are fascinating, but they're, there's not the only thing that they have in common is that they ask fascinating questions and they don't give definitive answers to them, but they explore them in ways that open your mind to new possibilities. I can't think of a better answer, a more inspiring answer than that. The third question we ask is what is the latest and most consuming passion that you have and what's making your heart sing right now? Do you mean academically speaking? You could answer that way. Whatever comes to mind for you, however you kind of, in this moment, would, would start to think about that. Well, of course, I'm very excited about having, having the time to work on my uh, second volume that I'm working on. But I'm also very excited about getting my classes right, as I have done all these years. In a couple of weeks, I'll be back at the, at the lectern teaching my classes on economic sociology this quarter. And in the winter quarter, I'll be teaching freshmen about social networks. And I'm very excited about getting that right. You can never get it perfect. But I always think that every year I can get it better than it was the year before. And so that's a very consuming thing for me is to get that right. I'm really kind of a perfectionist in that way. And that's another reason that I have to bring it to a close because it just, you never can quite get it right. There may be people who can take their lectures from last year and say, oh, I'll just repeat these. I can never do that. Because it can, they can always be better. And that's, that's hard work. Indeed. I, I taught for a very short period just as a, a visiting position at Dartmouth. And I remember thinking a lot while I was teaching that course about mastery as a teacher and how different that was from mastery as a, as a researcher. And, and that was an interesting question for me. And I think your words are, are giving it, giving it new life. So thank you for that. The final question that we ask is what is one thing that you have truly and fully screwed up? <laughs> oh gosh. Um, well, there might be people in my family who would say that the thing I have screwed up is the balance between the academic part of my life and the non-academic part of my, my life. Um, that I have put so much of my energy into the academic part that the rest of it is may perhaps not as fully accomplished as it might be. And I can understand that, that there's some truth in that. But I have to say that I don't think it's in my control anymore. Mark, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. And, and I mean it when I, when I say that um, your work has kind of altered uh, the focus of my life as well. Um, so thank you for the things that you create and put out in the world. Thank you for the foundations you've laid in 
network science and, and threshold analysis and, and, and now collective intelligence and other aspects of, of our society that I think are are relevant. And I think the, the scholarship that you've created is only becoming more important to the dynamics that we're walking into in this world. Um, so thank you for the work that you've done and, and thank you for joining us here on Origins today. With pleasure. Music is by Swelo on all streaming platforms or at Swelo Music on social media.